Hello, and welcome to The Inoculation. I'm your co-host. My name's Eva von Schaper. I'm hosting this podcast together with Daiva. Hello, my name is Daiva Repachkaite. I'm a Lithuanian journalist. On our podcast, we discuss how vaccination became a matter of belief in Europe. Our guest today is Jakub Goda, a misinformation expert from Slovakia. Many of us realized that disinformation can not only hurt, but it can actually kill. And we wanted to talk about Slovakia because... The country has very high MMR vaccination rate, but in a 2018 survey, Slovaks were found to be the third least trusting of the safety of MMR vaccine in the EU. So welcome to the inoculation, Jakub. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Basically, my background generally was advertising commercial projects. In advertising, I was you know, producing communication visuals, digital visuals for brands, but I also I was pretty active in public sphere I was you know I was doing some political campaigns and similar stuff and at the same time I was actively participating in public debate I was writing to newspapers and, and so on besides some um, you know activism projects and similar stuff so one of the recurring themes that I was paying attention to and I was involved in was social media and disinformation campaigns and the way how social media and communication technologies influence, you know, our social and political lives. And for years, I was basically ringing bells that state and institution is behind and they are failing to adapt to this new environment. And I, when I had the opportunity to basically influence these sort of things from inside, I was kind of willing to participate in this way and to try to help Ministry of Health, you know, advance and transform their digital communications, particularly in the middle of pandemic, where this seems to be extremely urgent and necessary to, to fight disinformation and to inform the public. So it, it seemed like one of the crucial things that was needed to do. And I, I, I tried to not only criticize, but also help myself. That's what I'm currently doing. You just said you saw worrying things. What were the things that you first saw where you said, oh, this is a problem with social media? Do you have an example for what that could be? Oh, well, surely it's a pretty wide subject. So I was worried about all of the things that are currently well known that are associated to social media. That's rise of extremism. That's, you know, rise of polarization. That's spread of fake news of disinformation and conspiracy theories, also addiction towards social media. It's all these kind of influences that it has, how it affects you know, political speech, how it affects traditional media, how it allows the creation of new sort of disinformation websites or these kind of junk news sites that are not really disinformation, but some kind of political tabloid that uh, I'm kind of studying it for years and the effects seems to be really wide and multidimensional and pretty deep. So I think health misinformation is just one subset, you know, of the whole theme or the whole problem with social media. But, you know, in the middle of pandemic, it was really important subset, I would say. And I think many of us realized that disinformation can not only hurt, but it can actually kill. It's something I was trying to raise awareness about for quite some time, but in the middle of pandemic, it became like a mainstream knowledge. People are being invited to televisions. It's kind of really a mainstream topic in you know, big media. Politicians are talking about it. It's something really widely acknowledged and widely discussed finally in this year. 
Before, a couple of years ago, it was a matter of a couple of journalists and writers and activists, and I was part of it. But it was kind of like a niche subject that seemed like not that relevant or, or not that important. But during the pandemic, this, this has become a huge mainstream topic, particularly health misinformation. So, yeah, I think, I think currently this is one of the most prominent issues related to social media, but generally I think the problem is really wide. Sometimes Russian disinformation or Russian campaigns are discussed prominently. Then it is health misinformation that is being discussed. Another time it's polarization, but I think we should not forget what is the deeper uh, the deeper theme is the way how social media operates, how it changes the information structure and the way how we communicate with each other. So that's like an underlying deeper issue and there are many subsets related to this sort of topic. But do you see that the people who or the websites or the pages that are currently spreading pandemic-related misinformation came from uh, different topics, for example, security or foreign policy, or did they come from previous niche health misinformation topics? Oh, I think both are true. So we had some notorious uh, sites that are for years spreading this sort of health misinformation. So obviously they became even more active during pandemic and they were like one of the key uh, misinformation spreaders. But as the health and pandemic have become the mainstream or the really key thing that people were discussing that were in the center of political fights and gained all the attention. So obviously and other players became more active in this as well. I think this is generally true for all the news, that not only health news sites, but also like general political and news cycle became, you know, centered around health and around pandemic. So it's, a, it's the same as in normal newspaper, the same way in disinformation topics, the, the pandemic and COVID and, and all the related stuff has become the, the really the key thing. People are writing about stuff that is being talked about. So this is the same on every level, from normal traditional journalists and newspaper to disinformation websites and hoaxes. How much of this is read by politicians, candidates, you know, sort of political rebels that you find in every country? Yeah, we have quite a few of politicians who are doing this. Mostly they are from uh, far-right parties. So we have like one far-right party. I don't know what's the English translation. Generally, they are regarded as, as far-right extremists who are now members of parliament for a couple of years. They are generally spreading conspiracy theories and disinformation, not only about health, but, you know, about minorities and, you know, these sort of big conspiracy theories about, about how the world operates. So obviously they are doing the same thing during pandemic. It can be pretty influential because as they have eight or nine percent in, in polls, so they attract quite a lot of public attention. They have pretty strong voice on social media, so they are able to influence quite a lot of people. And maybe there are a couple of more politicians who are a bit less prominent. Maybe I would count even a couple of more who are pretty influential. So I think it's it goes both ways that these sort of politicians are doing it because they see from other disinformation websites that it kind of works, but then they amplify it when they're actually doing the same. So it's difficult to quantify. I don't know, you know, how big it is uh, in terms of the general effect, 
but I would say it's a pretty important factor in, in the whole thing. And we can see that if some kind of narrative becomes uh, popular, obviously there are more actors that are going to adapt and they are going to use it. So this happens all the time. Something starts at some kind of niche, fringe, uh, disinformation sites or, or, or Facebook groups. And then when, when we see that it's, it's kind of attractive as a narrative, then it grows and ultimately some, some bigger player, sometimes politician from these sort of parties, adapt it and, and they use it. Is there one person you can pinpoint or one website that you would pinpoint where you see the most disinformation coming from? I think that it, if I should name the strongest voice or the strongest player, it probably would be this far-right party. It's People's Party of Slovakia. Uh, you, you can, I don't know, you can... You can check it out. So it's far-right party in Slovakia that first entered the parliament in 2016. Now it's their second term that they are in parliament. A couple of years ago, they were openly wearing like neo-Nazi uniforms and using neo-Nazi symbols. Now they are trying to mimic or trying to pretend that they are more kind of, you know, mainstream or, or not extremist, but basically they are regarded as extremist party. And they are generally and in the long term, they're using disinformation narratives and spreading conspiracy theories. It's one of their, I would say, key feature, key fe communication feature and one of the key ways how they attract public attention and how they also exploit social media because social media played a, a huge part in, in the way how they became popular and how they were able to enter the parliament because they didn't have the access to the mainstream media who were generally like, they were refusing to give them a platform. So they were using social media. They were pretty, pretty good at exploring social media because as we know strong and extreme voices resonate really well i would say that they are one of the key players also in inoculation or vaccine okay. topics is there evidence that they are using vaccine inoculation topics to win elections is there something that you can say there's definitive proof that this is happening? It's kind of a stretch. I, I, I wouldn't say, you know, they're using this specific topic to specifically win election. It's basically they're using whatever it whatever comes. So, you know, a couple of months ago, they were denying that COVID is a problem. They were trying to pretend that it's it's just a flu and they were trying to spread this kind of conspiracy theories, this kind of important foreign project that was artificially created. So they're using whatever whatever comes. If vaccination is the main topic now, they are using this. When it will be something different next month, they will be using the what comes. It's part of the bigger game. It's difficult to figure out how serious they are. Some of them might be even, you know, authentic. Probably many of them are not. They are just opportunistic and they are just using it as a tool, how to attract attention. It's difficult to figure this out. We can only speculate. So in your day-to-day -day job, when you monitor the social media, what do you see as the main message that is currently being used against the vaccines? Are they very fond of the narrative that they're developed too quickly, or do they say that they're not safe? Like, what are the keywords? Yeah, I think it, I think it's obviously it's different kind of stories about side effects where the real side effects are being mixed with, with fake ones or, or with just fake stories about side effects. The real stories about people having some troubles after vaccination are mixed with stories about people who are having troubles because of vaccination. So it's kind of all uh, blurred and mixed together. There are some like complete hoaxes that are, that are just completely fake, like made up. 
there are real stories about people who are having troubles after vaccination, but it's not related to vaccinations. And then there are like real stories about troubles caused by vaccinations that are, you know, amplified or they are exaggerated to the proportions that are absurd. It's, it's this sort of mixture of stories. And obviously, yeah, one of the key repeating theme is that the vaccine was developed too quickly and it's kind of new, unknown, uh, unsafe. I think this kind of repeats all over again and it's something I can hear also from the polls that people are worried about side effects and about the speed of the vaccination, how quickly the vaccine became uh, available. It seems to be the same in other countries from what I can see, from what I can tell. And it seems to be really similar across different different social groups. It's kind of seems to be like a consistent thing. That people are basically worried about safety, side effects, about the speed with which the vaccine is created. Do you think there's something, or do you think you see some things that only happen in your country that you're not seeing anywhere else in Europe? You know, it's difficult to tell. I, I don't have such a great overview of, you know, the debate in, in Europe. But from what I can see, this seems to be really similar in many countries. This is a sort of worries about side effects and about the speed of vaccination development. I can't recall anything that I would consider like uniquely Slovak. <laughs> Do you think there are connections between the anti-vax groups? Do you see connections between the anti-vax groups? Well, this is also kind of difficult because as all journalists who are trying, who are dealing with disinformation investigations, they tell you that attribution is one of the most difficult part of the process. So it's difficult to tell if there are some connections, really. I mean, we know that I think there are some kind of reports that even the Russian propaganda and foreign propaganda is being active in anti-vaccination movement. But it's, I can't really tell how active they are in Slovakia. Probably they are in some way. I don't know. It's difficult to measure or quantify their influence, really. I would guess that most of it is kind of organic or uh, domestic. Usually governments are quite at loss how to deal with this new type of actors. And, and they always say we need to educate the society and we need to inform them. But then when the time comes to actually do something on the ground, they, they don't know what measures they can use. So now that you've known the side of the government and the public sector and how it works, what would you say is the most effective strategy or an effective strategy? What can the government control? So I think it's a combination of different approaches. One of the first things that we were doing, we were trying to use the legal system as well. One of the most active and notorious actor when it was spreading health misinformation, I was trying to push for the legal action against them from the Ministry of Health. So they were sued. They were sued by basically by, by minister personally. And now it's the police is begun the investigation. So it's not finished. We are not sure whether it will come to some kind of you know, tangible result, but it was widely medialized. It kind of gained the attention that, okay, Ministry of Health is finally doing something. They're finally dealing with this kind of stuff. They're trying to, to do what they can. Now it's in the hands of police and in the judicial system to decide whether what they were doing is across the line when it comes to freedom of speech or not. But at least everybody saw that, you know, the Ministry of Health was trying to do what they can. So that was one of the f first things, and that's one of the things that I would recommend to, to basically try and test the boundaries of the legal system. Like, you can identify the most extreme players, talk with lawyers, and try to sue them as well. 
I wouldn't say that this is like something that I would rely on heavily or that I would do systematically. It's not like, you know, we do this day by day. We did this in the beginning. It was an important signal for the public and for the media that this kind of new approach in Ministry of Health. And we are not just going to look around and not just going to be passively looking at the information being spread, but we are trying to do what we can. Another thing is that we were trying to contact Facebook representatives and we were trying to, you know, alarm them and inform them about information actors. And we are having this kind of ongoing relationship when we are trying to alarm and show them some kind of cases and they are sort of doing something. They are responding better for the official government emails than they were responding for like emails from random activists or writers that I, you know, have, I have the experience with that as well. So it kind of works better when government is talking to them. So that's another thing. And obviously uh, one of the key things or one of the things that you can do continually is trying to improve your own digital communication and trying to kind of transform the ministry to be like really active and loud voice in the digital sphere. So historically or traditionally, government institutions were really rusty and they weren't really trying. And if they were trying, they were kind of really not that skilled in using digital technologies or social media for spreading their messages. And this is something that definitely everybody should try to, to improve. And I see a huge potential here because in a, in a couple of months, we were able to build like really strong social media channels, which are gaining a lot of attention, not only organically and virally through social media, but also media ecosystem. Like journalists, they're using it as a source for their articles. They're kind of happy to grab our images, our videos, our infographics and spread it and, and use it for their articles. Also like tabloids or television. So the actual voice coming from our social media is is pretty huge, pretty strong. And the value for money is, I, I think, quite good because we are not investing almost any money for promotion. Uh, we are doing it internally. It doesn't cost much, really. It's just, you know, my time, basically, and time of a couple of another people. That's something I would really recommend. I think governments and government institutions should use creative and digitally skilled people to communicate in, in the, the social media environment and in the digital environment in general and not to rely only on this kind of old school bureaucratic way of responding to journalist question. It's kind of a deeper mental transformation that needs to happen. It's not only about, you know, starting to be more active on Facebook. It's about like kind of a deeper underlying change that you need to actually, you know, not wait until the question comes from the journalist, but actually monitor social media, trying to identify the worries or the topics that are being discussed, figure out what's the best way to communicate with, you know, video, infographic, longer text, smaller text, all sort of stuff. The result can be kind of impressive, but at the same time, I think it's important to manage the expectations because even as we try hard, still the disinformation is being spread in Slovakia. It's not like we killed it. It's still being spread. It's still being kind of huge, but at least we are trying to, you know, compensate or balance it in this way. Can I just quickly ask something about Facebook? When you contacted Facebook, what kind of changes did they make? In a couple of instances where we identify a specific disinformation that we flagged, they deleted it. And also one of the players that I was talking about before, it's called Badatel. They are not active on Facebook anymore. We don't know why exactly is that, because Facebook denies so far that they would delete the 
page, but we knew that after a couple of posts were deleted, they were they started to be more careful. And they were not posting some stuff on Facebook because they knew that it might be deleted and stuff like that. So, and finally, now they are not active at all on Facebook. I'm not sure if I can link it directly to the Facebook actions, but at least that's the result now. And at least I can tell that Facebook did delete a couple of instances of hoax and they did start some kind of internal investigation, at least from what they told us. So they're far from doing enough and they don't respond so quickly every time and stuff like that, but they do at least something. And I think it's pretty important if maybe several government institutions would be so active and, and would be contacting them, they might be more responsive. I think it's quite important to try to demand their attention for the country because we know that they respond to media and political pressures. So I think you should try to do your best to, to actually create this pressure. Do you see misinformation moving mm-hmm. from Facebook to Telegram, other channels, new chat rooms or anything of that sort? Mm, probably YouTube. I would name in Slovakia. There's also the reason why we created our own YouTube channel where we tried to also post our videos. In Slovakia, the Facebook is really dominant. So Twitter is not a huge actor in Slovakia. It's, it's kind of, it's not used that widely. Instagram is growing and it's pretty huge for younger people. But so far, this information is not such a huge thing on Instagram, as, at least from, from the reports that I've read. I'm not aware of Telegram. I'm not sure if this would be huge in Slovakia. So I would say it's mostly still focused on, on Facebook and maybe maybe YouTube as well. It's probably a matter of time when Instagram will become more important as well for, for disinformation spreaders. But at the moment, from what I can tell, it's, it's not that it's not comparable. To- for example, in Germany, we also see a move away from Facebook. Mm-hmm. But they are, cl- but it's clearly a move uh, to Telegram, for example. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, to be honest, I, 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 I wasn't checking specifically Telegram. Is mostly because I, I'm not aware if this is so hugely used in Slovakia. So I, I wouldn't expect this. It's used in a in a lot of the former or Eastern European countries. It's very big. Okay. And the biggest account in Germany on Telegram is an anti-vaccine. Okay. Uh, so it's, it, it's quite surprising. So this is somebody who was, I think, banned from YouTube, and now he's on Telegram, and he has, an, I think, 250,000 Telegram followers, which is a big, big number on Telegram. Yeah, in past, where a couple of accounts were blocked on Facebook, they were trying to migrate to Vkontakte, to the Russian social network, but they were not really successful because uh, they realized there is they, they were not able to attract so many people with them to Vkontakte. So... I think then they basically came back and tried to create new accounts on Facebook. So, yeah, I mean, if there will be some larger wave of blocking accounts, it's generally really interesting to see where they will be trying to migrate. But at, at the moment, I'm, I'm not seeing really this so heavily. Towards the end of the interview, if we ask you, what do you need in your job? What could make your job dear with me? What would you say? From who? From the ministry or from social networks or from whose side? Whatever is the most relevant. I think it's kind of important to maybe scale our activities. So what we are trying to do is to establish our efforts in an organizational structure of ministry in a more deeper way. And, you know, maybe to have stronger support in terms of uh, human resources and stuff like that. And also if another ministry and state institutions will be doing something similar in a similar active way. So that we, so this way we could be able to build 
something like a digital infrastructure where different government institutions would be able to create synergies and, and help each other, that could be helpful. Okay, excellent. And is there one thing that you would say that people misunderstand about misinformation or do you think there's something that's not reported correctly? I think it's uh, one of the things that I'm saying is that this topic is being reduced to hoaxy, to disinformation in really reduced way. What I see as a problem is like a general decrease of quality of information. And it's, it's happening on different levels. Sometimes what happens is that it's not disinformation or it's not hoax, actually. It's a real information, but it's being presented in a way, creating a false impression or it's, it's kind of manipulative or it's taken out of context. So I think to name the whole problem as a, as a hoax is kind of reducing the, the broader issue and it's like a general depreciation of quality of information and of, of some kind of journalistic standards. I, I kind of understand why it is being portrayed in this way because it's quite difficult to explain, but it's not always about fake news. Fake news is really just a subset much broader issue that is you have like millions of actors now who are trying to traditionally journalists are doing and that is choose edit spread information but they are not having any kind of standards for doing it so there is so many actors who are not spreading fake news they are spreading basically real news but they are doing it in a selective way manipulative way really cheap or really low quality way. There are so many levels or so many ways how bad information or, or, or low quality information is being spread and fake news is it's really just a small part of it. So this is something that sometimes is being sort of misinterpreted. You know, I don't think fake news are really such a problem. I don't think the information is such a big deal. And yeah, it's probably not. If we reduce it to some kind of really niche fake news sites, they are probably really not such a big problem. But if we taking into consideration the huge social media environment in its entirety with all the ways how it influences us, then it's that's the topic that we should be discussing, how it changes the information and the, the news on every level. So thank you very much. And if you have any comments, you can always email us at theinoculation at gmail.com. And to make sure you never miss our stories and conversations, you can follow us on Twitter at tinoculation. That's T like tango. Our Instagram is the underscore inoculation. And you can also follow us individually. I'm at Eva Von Schaper. That's S-C-H, all in one word. And I'm at diva underscore hadiva. Our research is supported by journalismfund.eu. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Bye.